Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. No one can predict exactly how they might respond to seeing something truly horrific, like discovering a deceased body. The human brain's response to something like this varies dramatically from person to person, encompassing a wide range of natural reactions and responses. Fear, shock, numbness, hysterics or detachment, among many others. Some people even experience something called unconscious denial where the brain quite literally blocks out painful realities as a defense mechanism. Coping mechanisms like these are one of the reasons it's surprisingly common for an untrained person's initial reaction to believe they're looking at a mannequin before realizing the terrible truth. But in 1982, in Brighton, New York, there was a crime scene so grisly that even the officer who responded had his doubts about what he was seeing. 40 years later, he would claim that it was the strangest thing he'd ever seen in reality. He said he wasn't sure if it was real and thought it was a possible prank or something out of a bizarre science fiction movie. Join me now as we take a closer look at the Brighton Axe murder case. You'll hear a strange twisting narrative that left police and the suburb of Brighton puzzled for decades. And you'll learn how after all these years, a new analysis of this horrific crime scene got this very cold case moving yet again toward justice. February 19, 1982 was a cold day in the affluent Rochester, New York suburb of Brighton. It was a Friday and the temperature was just above freezing, a blanket of snow covering the ground. Brighton police officer Marcus Baker was out in his cruiser doing his rounds when around 5 o'clock in the afternoon, an alarming call came into 911. Brighton police, hello? Please come to 38 Del Rio Drive. There's been, I think, a murder across the street. The woman on the phone's neighbor 30-year-old James Krosnick had just run over to her house clutching his three-year-old daughter in his arms. He was beyond distressed, with a look of terror on his face, barely able to communicate. Okay, calm down now. What happened? I don't know. Her husband's here and he can't even talk. She's in her bed and 
It was Officer Baker who received the call to go to the crime scene, but the police radio in his cruiser was malfunctioning, so he wasn't able to clearly make out everything the dispatcher was telling him. He did, however, manage to hear the address, 33 Del Rio Drive, so as he made his way to the scene, he kept his siren off in case the call was for a crime in progress. When he arrived at the address, the neighbor who called 911 was standing outside of her home. She told Officer Baker that the man who lived across the street believed his wife had been murdered. Immediately, Officer Baker hurried into the house, announcing himself to no answer. The place was messy, with some broken glass and items strewn around the floor, as if a burglary had occurred. He then went upstairs and entered the master bedroom, and what he saw stunned him to his core. There, lying on the bed underneath the covers, was 29-year-old Kathy Crossneck. Everything about the scene looked as if the woman was sleeping, except for the axe that was still buried in her head. It was very clear the victim had only been struck once with the axe. One devastating fatal blow, and there was absolutely no signs of a struggle at all. Officer Baker had never seen anything like this before. He wondered if it was even real, hoping that somehow it was just some kind of sick prank. Then he lifted the blanket at the foot of the bed to inspect the victim's feet. There was no question about it. The victim was real. He described the sensation as something out of a bad B-movie and says to this day he's still haunted by what he saw. Stunned, Officer Baker called for backup. Meanwhile, Kathy's husband, James Crossneck, was still across the street at the neighbor's house, clearly in shock for having earlier found the same horrific scene Officer Baker had just discovered. And with James was his and Kathy's three-year-old daughter, Sarah. Soon, police would interview both husband and daughter to see if either of them could shed light on the horrors that had happened inside the house that day. James Crosnick and Kathy Schlosser were both originally from the same hometown of Mount Clemens, Michigan, where Kathy's father worked as a truck driver, while the Crosnicks owned a successful carpet business and a nice home by the water. Everyone in town bought their carpets off the Crosnecks. And although James and Kathy had known each other in high school, they didn't start dating until college, while both attending Western Michigan University where Kathy studied occupational therapy and James studied economics. By 1974, the young couple were married, much to the approval of Kathy's mother, who was elated her daughter and married a man from a family with such a good, strong reputation. After getting hitched, the young couple moved around a bit while James pursued his master's degree and PhD in economics, and Kathy started her career as an orthopedic therapist. Then, almost four years after the wedding, their daughter Sarah was born. It was also around this time when James came home with the good news that he'd earned his PhD, and by 1979, he was teaching economics at a college in Virginia. A couple years later in 1981, 
James landed a job working as an economic forecaster for mega photography company Eastman Kodak at their headquarters in Rochester, New York. This was the year Kodak surpassed $10 billion in sales, far and away the biggest film company in the world. For an economist like Jim, this opportunity was like a minor league player getting called up to the big leagues. So the Krosnicks moved to Rochester, bought a beautiful two-story house in the suburbs, and for about five months, everything was absolutely picture-perfect with the young happy family. A real Kodak moment in the flesh. But soon their luck would run out when Eastman Kodak discovered that James had been lying about his resume. About five months after James was hired, his employers learned he never actually completed his PhD at all. Obviously, this put James' entire career in jeopardy. And only three days later, he came home from work to find Kathy murdered in her bedroom. Over a matter of three days, James' entire life had exploded into complete ruin. And even more than that, police investigating Kathy's murder were now, understandably, treating James as a potential suspect. Police first spoke to James at the scene of the crime, and later that evening, brought him down to the station for a formal interview. According to James, he'd left for work that morning at his usual time, around 6.30 a.m., while Kathy was still asleep in bed. When he returned home around 4.50 p.m., again his usual time, he parked the car and noticed the side door to his garage was wide open, with shards of broken glass all over the floor. One of the small windows in the door, the one closest to the door handle, had been shattered, as if someone had reached through from the outside to unlock the door manually. Very concerned, James entered the house, shouting out for Kathy, anxious to see her and three-and-a-half-year-old Sarah. A few moments later, he walked upstairs to find Kathy's horrific murder scene. He then hurried into Sarah's room, where he found his daughter sitting on the corner of her bed. Her clothes were mismatched, as if she dressed herself, wearing a red sweater on top of a pink sweater, two pairs of socks, and corduroy pants. James immediately picked her up and hurried downstairs and out the door, heading directly across the street to his neighbor's house. But when police spoke to the neighbor to get her account of what had happened, she included a small new detail. According to her, while James was holding Sarah in his arms, he'd kissed her, and then she heard Sarah quietly tell her father, I'm glad you came home early today, Daddy. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday. 
I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Police soon began examining the crime scene itself, working on the theory that it was most likely some kind of burglary gone wrong. Under this theory, it appeared as though the burglar must have gained access to the house by breaking the glass window in the garage door. There was also a wood-splitting mall leaning nearby the entrance, apparently the tool the burglar had used. Furthermore, the axe that was used as the murder weapon was confirmed to have belonged to the crossnecks, which did, in fact, fit in with the burglary-gone-wrong theory because premeditated murderers would most likely bring their own weapon. Inside the house, there were a number of items that appeared as though they were about to be stolen. Lying on the carpeted dining room floor were contents from Kathy's purse, as well as an expensive silver tea set. Also on the floor, beside the items, was a black garbage bag, as if the thief was about to stash the items inside it before fleeing. But there was something strange about it all, especially the tea set. Everything looked as if it had been placed very carefully and gently onto the floor, rather than being the work of a criminal in a hurry. Everything was still upright and in its place upon two silver platters. But there was another clue investigators found that made them question their burglary theory even more. They found a faint shoe print inside the rim of the garbage bag on the floor. It was as if someone had put their foot on it in order to open the bag before loading in the stolen items. Of course, it was possible it had been at that exact moment when the burglar had paused his crime, but it was the tread of the shoe print that really grabbed their attention. On a cold, snowy, wintry day in New York, Detectives would have expected a cat burglar to be wearing boots, or at least something with a bit of a tread. Instead, the print revealed the opposite. It was almost smooth. It looked more like a slipper, or perhaps a boat shoe. Awfully slippery shoes for a burglar that might have to suddenly dash away and make a run for it. Putting it all together, the burglary gone wrong theory just wasn't adding up. In fact, they didn't identify a single item from the house that had been stolen. There was even $50 in cash left in plain view on the bureau in Kathy's bedroom. And then a new theory emerged that the house had been staged to look like a burglary. But why? So far, police had spoken to James as well as the neighbor who called 911 they poured over the crime scene itself, but were completely stymied by what they'd found. Whoever the mystery perpetrator was hadn't left behind so much as a fingerprint. Later testing would show that the axe handle of the murder weapon had been deliberately wiped down for prints. But there was still one very important witness detectives needed to speak with, someone who might be able to unravel the entire mystery. Kathy and James' three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Sarah. While James spoke with detectives, a youth officer spoke with Sarah, who said she'd seen a bad man in her house that day. She went on to describe the bad man further. According to three-year-old Sarah, 
She'd seen the bad man sleeping in her parents' bed. He had long blonde hair with an axe in his head. When asked whether the man was black or white, Sarah responded, the man was many colors. The detective interviewing young Sarah realized that she was most likely describing was not actually the perpetrator. Instead, he believed she was describing seeing her own mother covered in blood after being murdered, but mercifully hadn't been able to comprehend what she'd really seen. Sarah then told the detective that she'd woken up that morning and went downstairs, but there was glass on the floor, so she went back upstairs and played with dolls in her room. The detective quickly understood that this meant Kathy had been murdered early in the day before Sarah had woken up. And tragically, it meant that Sarah would have been there alone all day with her dead mother in the house. As detectives conducted interviews down at the station, other police officers continued canvassing the neighborhood door to door to see if anyone had seen anything suspicious. One neighbor reported seeing a man slowly jogging toward her that day. As the jogger got closer, she saw he was wearing a ski mask on his face. Was this a possible suspect in what was already looking like a very strange case? Or was it just someone keeping warm on a brisk winter day? Early the next day, James was again interviewed by police, but when it was over, they asked if he'd be willing to do yet another interview later in the day. James agreed. Meanwhile, Kathy's autopsy was completed. The medical examiner said the cause of death was an axe wound to the head and also confirmed there was no evidence of sexual assault. It was determined that Kathy's estimated time of death was between 4.30 a.m. and 7.30 a.m., which didn't contradict James's claim she'd been alive when he left for work at 6.30. It also fit in with Sarah's timeline that Kathy had been murdered before she'd woken up. Later that day, police went to interview James again as they'd agreed, but they discovered he'd abruptly left town without informing them. Instead, James and Sarah had been picked up by his family and were on the drive back to his and Kathy's hometown in Michigan. For James, his decision to leave town wasn't illegal in any way, but in detectives' minds, it only increased their suspicions that he'd been involved in Kathy's murder. A few days later, their suspicions would grow again when they performed a search on James's car. Inside, they found a pamphlet that contained an advertisement for marriage counseling. From everything police had gathered about the Crossnecks, absolutely no one had ever suggested that James and Kathy might be having marital problems whatsoever. But just maybe, things hadn't been so idyllic behind closed doors. A few weeks later, a detective took a trip up to Michigan and interviewed James again. And after speaking with detectives, on more than one occasion, James decided it was time for him to get a lawyer. And despite the fact that any decent lawyer will tell you to never speak with police without an attorney, especially if you're innocent, the lead detective still viewed James's decision to lawyer up as a red flag, even stating in an interview with Dateline NBC that it, quote, put strong suspicion on him. But despite their strong suspicions, 
there simply wasn't any evidence to prove that James had murdered his wife. In fact, the only evidence they had against him was a lack of evidence against anybody else. Ultimately, the case went cold. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. James and Sarah moved back in with his parents in Michigan for a time before ultimately moving out west to Washington State. During this time, James got married twice and divorced twice. But then in 1997, he ran into an old friend from college Sharon James. They dated for two years before tying the knot. Over the years, and then decades, while the Crossnecks were trying their best to put the past behind them, back in Brighton, the mystery and folklore surrounding Kathy's unsolved murder continued to grow, captivating public imagination and adding layers of intrigue to an already mystifying case. Former police chief Mark Henderson would later describe it this way. You know, when I started in 1986, everybody had an opinion, everybody had a theory, everybody had a suspect. You couldn't go to a coffee shop without somebody talking about this case. Uh, Why don't you just make an arrest? An old friend of Kathy said she often asked police officers who came into the pharmacy where she worked if they had anything new on Kathy's murder. Police received inquiries from clairvoyance who wanted to touch crime scene evidence to get psychic readings. There were calls from individuals who wanted to confess to the murder, one in a psychiatric hospital, but no one with any information that made it sound plausible they'd been at the crime scene. Aside from these occasional reminders, the case went cold, and it got even colder for the next 32 years. But then in 2014, there was finally an apparent breakthrough in the case. Someone had confessed to the murder, and this time, police knew they had to take it seriously, because the man who just confessed was the only other real person of interest the police ever had. Let's rewind back to 1982. In the days following Kathy's murder, a neighboring police department in Rochester informed Brighton detectives about a person they believed needed to be looked into for the murderer. His name was Ed Larrabee. At 28 years old, Larrabee was already a convicted violent sex offender. he just recently got out of prison and was now living less than a mile from James and Kathy's house. And because Brighton was such a safe, peaceful place to live, Larrabee was one of the only known violent offenders in the area. 
it seemed like more than a simple coincidence. They learned that Larrabee worked as a delivery man for a local chemical company. He would have started work at 7.30 a.m. on the day Kathy was murdered. This meant that Larrabee would have had a one-hour window of opportunity to commit the murder after James had left for work at 6.30, but before he started his shift at 7.30. The timeline fed, but when police went to talk to Larrabee, he was absolutely hostile, cursing, telling them to get off his porch and to contact him through his lawyer. And because they didn't have a shred of actual evidence against him, only his prior history of violence, police felt they didn't have any real cause to pursue him any further. They never spoke to Larrabee again, and, almost inconceivably, he was all but crossed off the suspect list. But 32 years later, in 2014, Ed Larrabee was serving two life sentences for sexual abuse and attempted murder. He was now fatally ill with Luke Gehrig's disease and had begun confessing to even more crimes. His first confession was about the unsolved 1991 murder of Stephanie Kipchinski, a 27-year-old music teacher in the town of Greece, New York, another suburb of Rochester. Police found his confession credible. In fact, Monroe County DA Sandra Dorley said his confession was the worst thing she'd ever heard. It was probably around midnight. I went to her apartment and said that I used to work there. I had master keys. After breaking into Stephanie's apartment, Larrabee admitted to raping her. But that wasn't all. After some thought, I decided that the thing to do was eliminate witness. So you decided at that point you were going to kill her? Yes. Around this time of his deathbed confessions, Larrabee described himself to a journalist from the Democratic Chronicle as what psychiatrists call a sociopath without morality, ethics, or remorse. And not long after confessing to murdering Stephanie Kipchinski in 1991, Larrabee also confessed to murdering Kathy Krosnick in 1982. But unlike his first confession, which police found credible, authorities had plenty of reasons to doubt Larrabee's claims regarding Kathy's murder. There were just too many incorrect details. He described Kathy's residence as an apartment instead of a house. He claimed to have had the keys, but that didn't explain the broken window in the garage. More than that, he described Kathy as a brunette and heavyset, but Kathy was neither. Almost nothing of what he said seemed to be accurate. But perhaps the most telling detail that Larrabee got wrong was that he claimed he'd sexually assaulted Kathy before murdering her. There was absolutely no evidence of a sexual assault in the autopsy. And beyond that, it was well established that Kathy had been murdered while sound asleep. So no matter how much police wanted Larrabee's confession to be true, to bring closure to Kathy's family and solve an infamous decades-old cold case, there simply wasn't any way they could buy it. So, again, the case went cold. But this time, not for long. It seemed that Larrabee had lit a fuse beneath the police department to do whatever it took to solve the Brighton Axe murder case once and for all. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. The following year, Police Chief Mark Henderson requested a new look at the case. The FBI got involved, and all the old evidence was scrutinized and reevaluated piece by piece. And the more they looked at the evidence, the more convinced they became that the entire burglary scene had been staged. They didn't feel like the intruder had broken enough glass out of the garage door to safely reach his hand inside without injuring himself. Rather, it looked like someone had faked the break-in after the fact. Then, there was the sterling silver tea set that had been so neatly placed on the floor with everything still upright. What kind of burglar would be so careful? And of course, there was the shoe print inside the garbage bag, and this is where the police believed they'd struck gold. As police had originally noted, the treads of the shoe made an unusual shoe choice for anyone in winter. But now with the help of internet research, police were able to identify the exact brand of shoe that had made the print. After identifying the brand, Detectives noticed something that had been right under their noses the entire time. There, in one of the crime scene photos, was a pair of James Crossneck's boat shoes. It was the exact same brand they believed had made the shoe print. Police were starting to believe they had enough new takes on the old evidence to charge the alleged murderer. But first, they wanted to talk to James again. In April 2016, the two detectives flew across the country to Seattle to pay James a surprise visit, hoping to get a confession out of him. For the first time in about 35 years, James Crossnick was about to speak to police. When he answered the door at around 9.30 a.m. on a Saturday morning, the detectives introduced themselves and James invited them in. He and his wife Sharon sat in their kitchen for over an hour with the detectives. As James recounted the events of that horrible day, he began sobbing as he described discovering Kathy's murder and finding his daughter alone in the house. But if James was hoping the police had shown up with good news, he couldn't have been more wrong. They soon began speaking to him in a more confrontational way, a tone that escalated to the point where the detectives were directly accusing James of murder, and James asked them to leave. Despite not getting any confession out of James, the detectives felt they'd at least gotten a strong response. In fact, they would later state in interviews that James had seemed anxious and restless, that they could see his heart beating, 
and Tira's breathing became strained. They said that they were making him feel uncomfortable at his own kitchen table. To them, James' anxiousness was indicative of a guilty conscience. But of course, what normal person wouldn't become nervous while being accused of murder during an early surprise Saturday morning visit by police? To double down on their investigation into James, police then sent the old crime scene evidence off to an FBI lab for a DNA analysis. When the results came back, no DNA outside the immediate Krosnick family was found at the scene. Now, you've probably heard us use this phrase a few times in the past, that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. But in this case, the authorities were turning that phrase on its head. Later, current Brighton Police Chief David Cathaldi had this to say. DNA, fingerprints, or the lack thereof, can speak volumes. James lived at 33 Del Rio Drive, and one would suspect his DNA would be in his house. It is telling no other physical evidence at the scene to include DNA points to anyone other than James Krausnick Jr. In answering questions from reporters, Chief Cathaldi was empathetic. To my knowledge, there has been no DNA evidence recovered from the home or on any piece of evidence that belongs to anybody else. So there is no, I hate to use the, word, the term, there's no boogeyman out there. Even with the entire weight of law enforcement coming down on James, the authorities were still well aware they didn't have enough evidence to convict him at trial. They still needed to find a single strong piece of solid evidence against him. And before long, they believed they'd found it. A renowned pathologist taking a fresh look at the evidence was making a startling claim. During this investigation, we have consulted with Dr. Michael Baden, a world-renowned forensic pathologist who has over 45 years of experience in his field. He was a chief medical examiner for New York City, has conducted over 20,000 autopsies, and is considered an expert in his field. We believe in examining the timeline of events, speaking with witnesses, and James's timeline that he provided along with all other evidence, will establish that James Krausnick Jr. was home at the time of the murder. According to Dr. Michael Bodden, he concluded that Kathy's time of death was much earlier than previously thought. And if Dr. Bodden was correct, James's alibi of being at work was no longer valid. Police then brought the case and the new evidence before grand jury and on November 1st, 2019, James Krosnick was indicted and arrested for murdering his wife. James vehemently pled not guilty to the crime. His wife Sharon and his daughter Sarah, now 41, stood by him. At trial, James's defense attorney argued a known killer like Ed Larrabee was far more likely to have committed the murder than James Krosnick. A man with no history of violence before or after his wife's death in his entire life. Co-defense attorney William Easton asked rhetorically, what are the odds that a guy who's one of the most robust, florid, psychotic, misogynistic killers this community has ever seen is living within a few minutes walk? It was a very strange coincidence 
and a huge point for the defense. And of course, Larrabee had even confessed to the murder. The defense also brought up the fact that on the morning of Kathy's murder, a neighbor had seen a man slowly jogging toward the Krosnick house wearing a ski mask. But there was no question that the prosecution presented their largely circumstantial case convincingly. It certainly did look like the crime scene had been staged, and the shoe print from the boat shoe was quite damning. They even had an expert to give testimony to prove that the shoe had belonged to James. Combining all of this with the complete lack of fingerprints, DNA, or any other physical evidence that could point to anyone else, the prosecution's case kept adding up. But of course, the prosecution's silver bullet for the jury was their new estimated time of death in Kathy's murder. Dr. Michael Bodden, the expert called by the prosecution, wasn't just a star witness, he was more like a celebrity. At 88 years old, he'd been working in this field for more than 50 years. He'd served as the chief medical examiner for the city of New York and had helped investigate the assassinations of John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King. He testified in the trials of O.J. Simpson as well as record producer Phil Spector. But most recently, he'd made waves again in 2019 when he concluded that Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself in prison. Instead, it was Dr. Bodden's conclusion that he'd been manually strangled. When it came to Kathy's case, Dr. Bodden reviewed the original autopsy report and reached conclusions differing significantly from the original medical examiner. The key difference in Bodden's estimation of the time of death seems to have been the body temperature. Other experts calculated a slightly faster cooling of the body, while Bodden's calculation included the variables of the body being dressed and under a comforter as well as an electric blanket. According to him, Kathy had died sometime between 9 p.m. the previous evening and 4 a.m., a time frame that left James as the only possible suspect at the scene of the crime. To combat Dr. Bodden's testimony, the defense called on four equally qualified, though not equally famous, pathologists to refute Dr. Bodden's estimated time of death. After closing arguments, there was no question that the prosecution had made a convincing case, certainly a plausible one. But the real question was whether they'd proven their case beyond a reasonable doubt. In the end, it was all left to the jury. And after 10 hours of deliberation, they announced they had a verdict. James Krosnick, now 69 years of age, was found guilty. Before sentencing, a devastated James told the court he didn't murder his wife. I did not murder Kathy. I love Kathy with all my heart and with all my soul. I contribute, continue to be haunted at why and who someone would have murdered such a beautiful person. His daughter Sarah also spoke at sentencing, firmly standing behind her belief in her father's innocence. My father is not violent, angry, abusive, controlling, afraid of failure, ego-driven, or anything similar. The justice system has failed my parents, myself, and both sides of my family. It has also failed this community. 
the judge sentenced James to 25 years to life. But despite James being hauled off to prison, this case still wasn't over. His attorneys quickly filed an appeal on November 9th, 2022. However, just a few months later, James died in prison from cancer on May 5th, 2023. Because his case was still under appeal at the time of his death, the state said his indictment and conviction were to be vacated entirely. So essentially, he won by default. But it was James' dying wish to his lawyers for the appeal to go forward in order to clear his name. His family also wanted him exonerated for the court to decide based on the merits of his case rather than something that could be perceived as a legal technicality. The DA's office released a statement saying they don't continue to prosecute people after they die, no matter how confident we are of their guilt. This is no different. But James's attorney, Bill Easton, said he's dead. It's not for his benefit, but it would be for his reputational benefit, for his family's benefit. They're now attempting to set legal precedents by fighting for James' innocence from beyond the grave. While many remain critical of the Krosnick guilty verdict, arguing his case is the very definition of reasonable doubt, for others, the verdict marked the end of a terrible saga 40 years in the making. After the verdict was read in court, Kathy's sister Annette, along with her 95-year-old father, Robert Schlosser, walked out of the courtroom to a waiting press gallery. We did it. We did it. Justice for Kathy. We did it. We got our justice. For 40 years. Thank God we got it. Initially after the murder, Kathy's family had been some of James' most ardent supporters, despite the obvious suspicions of police. But according to Annette, it was her and Kathy's mother who since passed away, who first became convinced that James had murdered Kathy all those years ago. In an interview with Rochester newspaper, Democrat and Chronicle, Annette explained what caused the family to change its mind. She said, we looked at Jim's behavior and how he just left the state, refused to talk to the police, how he turned Sarah against us. We haven't seen her or her children. They're no longer a part of our life and that's devastating to us. May my family finally be able to heal. This has affected us for 40 years that we have been dealing with pain and anguish over this man. And we saw him walk away in handcuffs today and that's what we wanted. Now that the trial is over, Annette's hope is that somehow Kathy's family can reconcile and rebuild their relationship with Sarah. I told her when I walked in, you heard me, I said, Sarah, I love you no matter what happens. And she said, thank you. And now we pray that Sarah will come back to us and be part of us because she has no family now. She has Brain no... She's been brainwashed for 40 years. How horrible she must be right, feel right now. But let's give her some time and we'll be in touch with her. And now, I want to introduce you to a YouTube channel, and it's one I personally enjoy. It's not only hosted by a member of Team Madness, he also edits our episodes. 
And here's Aiden from Dark Corner Media. Did you know that John Wayne Gacy was a superfan of REO Speedwagon? Or that Charles Manson almost became a pop icon before, well, you know. All this is from my video on serial killers' favorite music. My name is Aiden Wolf, and I'm the host of Dark Corner Media on YouTube. Now, we cover all the things that you never knew you needed the answers to, like the dark histories of our favorite holidays, to the downright weird history of things like swearing. If you like urban legends or unsolved mysteries, check it out at Dark Corner Media on YouTube. That's our username on YouTube as well, at Dark Corner Media. I'll see you there. Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To support the show and get access to ad-free episodes, extra content, and Patreon-exclusive episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. To find us on Instagram and Facebook, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. And also, by checking out our sponsors and using our promo codes, you're also helping support the show. We've got all the links in our episode notes. So until next week, thanks for listening. <laughs>